This week's episode of Burning Man Live was recorded live during Burn Week, the actual week of the Burning Man event, Black Rock City, where 70,000 participants usually gather in the Black Rock Desert of Nevada in the U.S., along with thousands of staff and volunteers. There's Build Week, Burn Week, and Strike Week. During Burn Week, everything is happening and everyone is there, just like in this episode, where comedians and philosophers Duncan Trussell and Nick Kroll take over Burning Man Live, and Stuart, Andy, Logan, and I are the guests. We discuss everything from permission engines to economic models, everything from Judaism to fuckoism, <laughs> from artificial intelligence to the unintelligible. Thank you for listening, and we're sorry. Coming to you from the many worlds of the multiverse. It just got quiet. Zeus. So quiet. You're on. This is us now. Who is, who is driving this bus? Where are we? Who are we? What's happening? I have a, another friend. Hi, Duncan. That was awesome. Hello. We're going to play the intro or just fake it? We're going to fake the intro for now. We're going to say hi to Nick because he beat us here. Hey, Nick, you there? Hey, what's up, bro? Hey, Nick Kroll, welcome. Thanks for doing this. I texted you last night and you were like, sure, that's awesome. Thanks hey, for- man, got to keep that Burning Man spirit alive, right? Hey, why not? Immediacy. Yeah. Can you all introduce yourselves to Nick? I'm Andy Grace, action girl. Hi, Nick. Hi, Thanks Andy. for coming on to Burning Man Live. And we're so glad that you joined us. Andy is one of the people who is storytelling Burning Man culture. And I'm Michael Vav. I pull the levers. And I edit the stories. And I'm Stuart Mangrum. Stuart is the cacophonous philosopher, the director. Hey, Nick. I'm Logan Mircho. Normally, I'm running the Department of Public Works crew and building Burning Man. And in lieu of that, I've been doing podcasts and uh, philosophical center work for Burning Man with these fine folks. So welcome to the podcast that we're doing now. Right on. Is that what we're doing? Are we doing a podcast? Sure. sure. Where's I'm the intro music? Back. Somebody hum some oh. intro music. Coming to you from the many worlds of the Burning Man multiverse. That's right. The podcast. Never the same twice. Never the same twice. Never been the same in the first place. Something once. Yeah. This is Burning Man Live. And here's your host, Duncan Trussell. Hey, I'm taking over Burning Man. Not just for this, but for next Burning Man and all the Burning Mans to come. Take you over, show. Right, burners. They gave me the burn, and we're going to make some big changes. Nick Cole is here, and we just wanted to start off by talking a little bit about what the burn is going to look like going forward post-pandemic. Take it away, Nick. All right. Well, uh, I'd like to think of myself as a Mike Pence to your, uh, your Trump in, as the that. new head of Burning Man. No masks. No masks at Burning Man, first off. Going forward, radical no maskery is what I will say. What else? Uh, Pepsi sponsoring it now entirely. Is that right? Awesome. Finally. Um, at and, last. Uh, with, a, with a sub-sponsor by Monster Energy Drink, of course. That's the big stuff. And then uh, pee wherever you want, I think, is the other one. Pee, pee and poop 
out in the playa, yeah. do whatever you need to do, get it out, get it it's out of you. Nature intended. It. Yeah. Yes. Nature intended. And the new thing is leave it behind. Um, keep, keep no trace inside your body. <laughs> yeah. L I B. Yeah. L I B. Leave it behind. Leave it behind. Yeah. Full elimination. Constant full elimination. Squatty potties in every year. And uh, that actually, I am serious about. <laughs> that, uh, that's not a bit. Uh, but we're not sponsored I, by Squatty Potty. Is that right? No, no, no. We are not. This is truly, we are yes. truly not sponsored by. Yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, I'm working on the sponsorship. Actually, I just got off the phone with someone at Squatty Potty. They're very excited about it. <laughs> and I think it's going to happen. So there's some good news. during this um, And obviously, Halliburton is going to come on board uh, across the board, which we're okay. very excited about. I got to tell you, that was one of my favorite moments at the burn is the time those fighter jets flew over <laughs> Yeah, and that Dick Cheney can party. Oh, uh, who knew? Who can yeah. keep up with Dick Cheney? No, none of us. Yeah, yeah. That's the other crazy thing is like the Bohemian Grove. It's the new camp at Burning Man, which is so badass to finally have the Grove at the Burn. It's yeah, awesome. they've got the biggest owl ever. Yeah, <laughs> they have the real owl, and they're gonna burn it, and it's gonna be awesome. A little nervous because doesn't QAnon have a camp? Next year, (laughs) (laughs) made my whole body shudder. Yeah, Yeah, this is funny, but also kind of exhausting. It's too close to home, too close to the bone. Too close to the bone. Look, that's one of my favorite moments. Is anytime I mention Burning Man on Twitter, getting in the inevitable argument with someone who accuses me of taking part in a human sacrifice, which is one of the great mythologies about Burning Man is that they put a real person in the effigy. Y'all ever hear that? Yeah, randomly selected no. every year based on your the number on your ticket is what I understand, yeah. <laughs> it's a great honor. It's a great a honor. <laughs> you guys, you don't understand. Anything you say will end up on some conspiracy video on YouTube for sure. Like, see, they just say it openly now. Just, they're just admitting it. <laughs> Quiet part Headline news. Party man admits to human sacrifice. Yeah, that's right. Nick, the reason I texted you is because I was just scrolling through Instagram. I didn't know you even went to the burden somehow. What year did you go and what was it like? I went in 2018. It was the first and only time. So two years ago, first and only time I've been. And obviously I've heard about it forever. And then... I had just turned 40 and was, I guess, having the closest thing to kind of like a, I guess, midlife, not a midlife crisis, because I just was sort of like, I just remember being depressed when I turned 40 for any number of reasons about things. And I was all of a sudden like, why haven't I done this thing that I've heard is so interesting? And a bunch of people, the people who in my world, like you or Moshe Kasher or my buddy Chris Weitz or this guy Michael Tolkien, all these guys who I've known in one way or another all went and all seemed like such interesting and interested people. Their experience was so overwhelmingly positive and they're all such different kinds of people that I thought maybe it's worth a shot. And all of a sudden I was like, all right, I'm going to do it. And then I was back East with my best friend from college and we were up at his place in the Catskills and I was like, let's go to, do you want to go to Burning Man? And he would never have gone either. And we were like, yes. And so it was this, this guy who I've been friends with for 25 years and we drove the RV up from LA and had the most 
amazing experience. And there's something about sharing it with him too, someone who I've been friends with for, you know, like who's like a witness to your whole life. And so then you're in this weird space that's transcendent and making you look at various elements of your life where you are now and the lack of, uh, we may have taken acid. And so the timeline, we may have uh, for the first time and maybe for the first time ever, uh, allegedly. Because Burning Man's not weird enough. <laughs> well, that was the, it. Was our last day? It was the one. It was it was all of it. Which was, we had been out all day. A friend who had recommended it was like, you get classical music and lots of fruit. And so we went out and we had our bikes and we went out to the deep playa and hung out. We're both Jewish and I was, my skin has never felt better than when I was in the desert. I really was like, I'm a desert man. Like my Jewish genetics were very comfortable in the deep desert. Anyway, we had a great time. Sun was setting. It was so beautiful. And again, it was like this person who I've known forever. It was really just so fascinating. And then it got dark and we were riding our bikes. So the first time I really lost my sense of direction. And then we went to the burn to burn the man and it turned dark in all ways. I had a, it got dark, it got dark and then it was fine. And then my experience in general was just phenomenal. It was just a very exciting. And again, you really have to surrender to it. And I think looking at Burning Man right now in the middle of this pandemic, understanding surrender is an interesting thing that they're very different versions of them right now but i definitely took a lot with me took a lot of useful feelings and processing my life in a way there that i really have tried to take with me yeah yeah same man same yeah that's one of the craziest my theory on the whole thing is it's a it's a guru you hear these stories of real gurus. I've never, the ones that, you know, the mystic, I've met Ram Dass, he wouldn't have ever called himself a guru, but the real gurus, they're not domesticated. You get around them, they don't act, they don't follow rules. There's no, you know what I mean? They're, they're not going to meet your yeah. expectations because if they met your expectations, why do you even need a guru anyway? But if you're like open to them and open to the specific way they can like seemingly hurt you, it's a good hurt. Mm. You know what I mean? It's mm. like, it's a party. It's like stand up, right? Like you could say the audience is some kind of brutally honest being when you're performing. The last thing you would want is a dishonest crowd, right? Because that's going to foster the shit that's not funny in your material. But I feel like Burning Man does the same thing somehow. I don't know what it is, but it, any part of me that's, this is such a cheesy thing to say, but I had this little cooler of uh, strawberries, a little cooler of like shit that I was going to keep for me and my girlfriend. And I remember going into that cooler, eating strawberries alone in my tent. You know what I mean? And all like something about the burn, all my selfishness, all that thing inside of you that wants to keep everything for yourself. It felt so much bigger. And then you start giving stuff away and suddenly, yeah, I don't know. It's a cliche trite thing to say, but you realize, God, you know what tastes better than a strawberry? watching somebody else in the middle of a desert who's been eating jam and bread for the last two days eat a fresh strawberry, you know? Yes. Mm-hmm. That is way better than a strawberry. Well, they put people in EEG machines. When your mirror neurons get triggered, actually watching somebody eat a strawberry will give you the same 
neural pattern as if you were eating it yourself. So wow. there's science behind this. Yeah, and the thought that when you gift it and you get to watch them enjoying it, it probably is even a stronger signal. Yeah. But let's go back to skincare because, Nick, I hear you. My skin always feels awesome out there, too. This, mm-hmm. I think that what Playa Dust is is a combination of microdermabrasion and a chemical peel that you would pay hundreds mm-hmm. of dollars for in a spa setting. Um, do you think we can package this up? Do you think we can make a buck off of it? Oh, you better fucking believe it next year for sure. That's going to be one of the things we're going to have when people leave. They're going to have to go through a pretty, pretty the gift shop, basically. It's well, the yeah, gift shop. shop where you can get the fly of sand. Gift but shop then and you're going to get a pat down because well, you're not taking dust home with you that you're not paying for. That's the bottom line. That's, that's right. We Rigor I took dust back. I rented bikes, like little pedal assist bikes, and brought them up there and then returned them. And the bike rental place was like, you have returned it with all of this wonderful dust, and you cannot return these bikes. You have to buy them. <laughs> so I had that. But now I have these pedal assist bikes that I use in L.A., and it's a delight. I'm so glad. I'm so glad that I think about it. I finally just took off my little Christmas lights off of the wheels a month ago. Wait, a Jew is calling them Christmas lights. Don't you mean string lights? <laughs> uh, no, there's a, there's a war on bike lights and I refuse to accept them. So uh, no, they're Christmas lights. Let's call a light a light. They're all blue and white though, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. But I, I have this visceral feeling of taking the and again, we, I was sort of learning all this very like off of, you know, some website being like, here's what you do when you go to burn it, you know. And so I was and I remember that first day taping on the lights around the wheel and the little charger at the bottom put in the spoke. And, and I had this very visceral experience as I took off those lights of being like, boy, I remember day one of Burning Man being like, how do you string lights into a wheel and it, do I have the chart? Like, it's just that weird thing, that sensory thing of like, oh, I remember the exact feeling of, you know, and, and I guess it's sort of what you're talking about, that feeling of early hopelessness, especially for me only having gone once of like, this all feels daunting. I don't know how to do this. I'm not, I don't know how to do the bike right and all, and everybody else seems so comfortable inside of it. And then by day three, someone gave me the very good advice of being like, you should go for at least five to six days that first year. So you just at least get into a rhythm so that you are then in that rhythm. You're not sort of, because it does take that time to adjust to obviously all of it. Yeah. It was weird. The lights really did that to me. Acclimation is totally real. Spending time out there and getting acclimated is, is definitely part of it. And I can tell you that that sense of hopelessness and disorientation, I've been going to Burning Man for a very long time and that, that is always accessible to you every single year no matter how many times you've gone you can always tap right into that deep sensation of not knowing what the hell you're doing and feeling like you're never gonna figure that puzzle out yeah yeah speaking of jews this is it's friday night so this would be yeah there's a shabbat tonight yeah i think it's milk and honey we went and randomly my non-jewish friend told me about it because she was staying at that camp and i went with again with my friend I had gone to the temple for the first time the day before and sort of observed it and not strong, hugely strong reaction was observed it and enjoyed it. And then I went back the next day uh, with some friends and 
finally decided to write a little thing to some friends I had lost. And I just, you know, the floodgates opened and I just was like really quite, became quite emotional in the temple. And then we went to the Shabbat service at Milk and Honey outdoors at sunset, hundreds and hundreds of people. And I'm not a religious person and not terribly observant of my Judaism at all, but Again, I could not stop crying, like truly for like an hour or more at this Sabbath service, just could not stop crying. It was really super intense in a way that I don't think I've ever cried like that before, really. Not in that way. It was so beautiful. It was coming to near the end of the my week or time there. And I think I, I had opened it up. I maybe had also taken other, you know, stuff the night before. And so I might have been in a slightly more open place emotionally. But then it was also like the prayers of that thing of being like, oh, these have been said for 2000 years. And here we are back in the desert saying them again. And again, that lack of a timeline. But I couldn't keep my shit together. And I luckily had a big sombrero on that I just put over my face and nobody could see me crying. You know, because that's the thing. That, to me, no offense to y'all, because I know you're in the org, but that's my least favorite thing about Burning Man, is if you start crying, all those Burning Man bullies, I've got my ass kicked. (laughs) I don't know how many times, because I start, you know, I would start crying at the temple, and one of those temple bullies came and was just like, whoa, look at them, look at you! Why are you crying at the Look, those people are expensive. Yeah, and it says right on the ticket, don't show weakness. Right on the ticket, Dunkel. I mean, if you just read what's on the ticket, then you'll, you know, you're not going to encounter any problems with those people. Man up. And turn some lights on, you darkwad. (laughs) (laughs) Nick, that's cool, man. That's real cool. You know, I actually had, and I am not Jewish, but I did have an amazing literal Jewish experience at the burn. A rabbi came into our camp. I don't know who this person was. It was one of the more like intense spiritual moments of my whole life. He came up to me. He did that. I, my apologies. I'm, I don't know the names for these things, but he, he put filling. Yes. It's like religious S&M, like all leather, leather straps. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. And that box. And then he said this beautiful prayer. And then he, and that box, there was nothing in it. It was real. It was someone pretending to be a rabbi or some, you know what I mean? It was real. And yeah. This beautiful prayer. And I got that same sense of like, my God, the sound of that prayer sure goes great with the desert. There's a resonance mm-hmm. there. And then he was telling me all this stuff. It was so simple. He's like, you should keep your camp clean and avoid cocaine and like drugs like that. To have a clean burn is what he was saying and serve your camp. He's like, sometimes you're going to have experiences that are going to be, this actually made its way into the Midnight Gospel. He said, you're going to have experiences here that are going to seem really profound. And then sometimes you're going to forget them or you're going to doubt that that mystical quality of the universe exists. He's like, that's the wobble. He's like, that's wobbling and that's completely normal. So it's okay that you forget this. And that was, it. He's, you know, he wanders off into the desert, like, what the fuck was that? And you're just sitting there like, what just happened? I don't know what just happened to me. And that's one pixel of the burn. You know, that's like what, an eight minute period there, you know, and you're just like, I don't know what that was, but it was one of the coolest things that ever happened to me. So you didn't wobble on that, though. I never forgot that. I never forgot the way that sweet leather felt 
wrapped around my hey as a fan of SM, it didn't quite feel the same but it was there was something so <laughs> powerful in the embrace of that it was cool man that was a really cool what if you found out that inside of the box was a, one of your balls I would like to take a look at it because I'm missing one of my sweet Nick. I'd be like, how'd you get it? How'd you get it? Yeah, you left that with us. You left that ball with us last time you were in our studio. We were going to mail it back, but... Keep it. You only need one. You do. You only need one. Thank God. Same thing with kidneys. Eyeballs. Arms. Did you really? Sorry, I'm. Some of the irony of Burning Man is, is sometimes lost on me. Are there? Did you experience real bullies, temple bullies, or no? Because I feel like there are some real. No. Okay, because I feel like there are some people. One of my favorite things, or what I found so interesting about Burning Man, and I'm sorry that you guys are, or you're talking to like the person who has the least experience. So it's like, okay, here's what the fucking. Oh, look at your first time realizations. It's uh. It's refreshing. Yeah, we get too close. We get too close. Yeah, this is not deep cuts. So um, was the idea that every, there's always, your moment is always ruined there in a kind of a beautiful poetic way. (laughs) Like, um, (laughs) is he talking about fuckoism or? Yeah, it's, I think that's sort of what I'm getting to is we were, um, you know, those crazy overhead LED light. You know, I w- there was like a huge arm that held this light that you'd lie underneath and it's like a vortex. You lie down and it sort of looks like you're going into like, honestly, it looks like you're in a the transitional section in Midnight Gospel. You know, like when he's flying through the space. So you're lying there and there's just like a hundred people lying there just either tripping out or doing whatever and so into this beauty and there's gorgeous classical music playing <laughs> and then and then my buddy grabbed this you know those inflatable tyrannosaurus rex you know that costume that you can wear that's just like the tyrannosaurus rex is kind of like and he just walked the tyrannosaurus rex through all these people like peacefully lying down watching <laughs> you know like and it was i was like oh this is what this is this is it your peaceful moment is never forever. It's always ruined by an inflatable Tyrannosaurus Rex walk, walking through. Yeah, and I was it. like, I loved it. I or loved some jackass it. with a bullhorn who thinks he's funny. Yeah. Yes. I, I feel like those moments of disruption are there to keep me from getting caught up in my own bullshit, you know, so that I'm not mm-hmm. so that I'm not trying to too fully embrace this abstraction of an experience. And it just really regrounds me in the moment. And yes, and reminds me that I'm part of a society, and reminds me that it's not just me in this tunnel of light, right? Yeah, no. I love yeah. That. Okay, but what if it's somebody coming through your camp at sunrise, and you're sleeping after a long day of working and playing and doing what we do, and they have a bullhorn and they're pretending to be the birds with the sunrise, and they're screaming chirp. How does that feel? Or even worse. They're playing the recording they made of you and your partner in your tent having an argument last night through a bullhorn. Oh, oh. yeah, I like that too. <laughs> that sounds like Chicken John. People, people do that. Well, that's good. Is Thanks that for, for de- real? Thanks for deflecting, Bav. <laughs> it was absolutely not me. I did not do that. Uh-oh. I don't even own a bullhorn. Redirecting. Man, that is so terrible and chaotic and wonderful. I love it. That's the part I love about. You know, there's a story. Ramdas tells about his guru, Neem Koli Baba, and I, I'm sorry, I'm going to keep using the, the guru analogy, but he brought someone to Neem Koli Baba 
one of his intellectual friends from Harvard, because apparently his guru was demonstrating all this telepathic stuff, could do like crazy shit. And he wanted to show this friend, uh, psychologist, look, here it is, telepathy, clairvoyance, all the stuff I've been experiencing. And he brings him to Neem Koli Baba, who then be- proceeds to say to him, you have daughters, right? Daughters? And he's like, no, I don't have daughters. <laughs> You're going through a divorce or something. And he's like, no, no. And he's like looking at Ram. And I was like, all right, acid head. This guy's like, you totally, you've been had. And so the guy goes away and immediately like Neem Koli Baba is telling Ram Dass all this stuff about his friend. And he realized, oh, right. I was trying to use him as some kind of circus clown or some kind of performer, or like TV psychic or something. And he was completely disrupting that. Anytime I get missionary about the burn, or God forbid you go there trying to impose your idea of what it is on someone else. And then they go in one of the portajons after you've been talking about, oh, it's like a guru. And then the rabbis come to you. And then there's the temple. And, you know, they sit down to take a shit. And there's so much shit in the portajon that it's piled up that they sit on the shit. It's like, yeah, it instantaneously vanquishes any attempt to control it. That's what I feel like. It won't be controlled. You can't make it be anything. It just doesn't. Yeah. It's something I've been saying for a really long time is that Burning Man can, and I've been, this is would have been year 23 for me in a row, right? What Burning Man consistently does for me and something that I often repeat to my crew is that it lures me in every year with what I want, with this idea about what I want, and then it smacks me around with what I need. And that is exactly my experience every time. Yeah. Yeah. It just won't do what you want. It's not tame. But there are bullies there, Nick. You know what I mean? There are drunks. You know, there are assholes. Or even worse, you run into like some kind of fundamentalist who picks up that you're new to the burn. And then for whatever Uh reason, they go into fraternity mode or something. I had that experience where I realized like somebody was trying to do a boogly-woogly. You know what I mean? They go like Charles Manson (laughs) on you or something. You know, like, well, well, new to the bird, and bibbly, bibbly, what are you doing? What are you doing? You don't need to do that. <laughs> Have you gotten cast to play Manson yet? I'm too fat. We can Aww. fix that. It's not going anywhere. I think to get to play Manson, you got, hey, I'm, maybe like I could do, I think, imprisoned Geraldo Manson, maybe, but yeah, I would love to play Manson. That's a dream. Mm. You'd be great. I really believe in you. Thanks. Long time, um, right? <laughs> Childhood dream, basically. I really believe in you. It's all in the eyes. That knowing stare. Don't look Duncan in the eyes. It's that crazy slash homeless jacked vibe that Manson had that I feel like you really got to get into. God, man, that used to be my big acid test when I was in my ketamine phase is I would get blasted on ketamine, then pull up Charles Manson videos and like, you know, just watch him and try to like put myself in the place of one of his followers. You know, like just a little lighthearted fun, huh, Duncan? I highly recommend it because you get a taste of history. Because when you're that high and you're like watching him talk for a moment, you'll be like, "Wow, I think I know what he means." And then you're like, "Oh God, that's how it happened." <laughs> I get it. It's cool. <laughs> like, I, <laughs> wait, I just laughed and I didn't want to laugh. I think the right funny. vehicle will come along. I think that Manson musical comedy is just right around mm. the corner. Yeah. You like can dance, Hitler right? on ice, that kind of thing. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> it's coming. 
Speaking of the musical, the other thing that sort of similar kind of experience in that space that I had was we were ended up in an old saloon and more of an apothecary one night. And it was so lovely. And this woman was serving us tea. She's like a six foot red haired woman serving us tea. It was so delightful. And they had an old piano and I was with my friend, the friend of a friend who I became friends with there, Lance, who's a, a beautiful piano player. And they have a piano in there and he starts playing. It's dusty but he starts playing Rhapsody in Blue. It's Gershwin, and it's coming out of this dusty piano. <laughs> these, two, <laughs> these two awful guys come in and just start clapping to him and trying to request songs and just just decimate the vibe. Like, really. <laughs> and it, again, it was that same moment of, like, you can't get too lost in Rhapsody in Blue from a dusty piano before two bossy people come in and just destroy the vibe. And it was great. I was like, okay, it's time to go home. That's it. That's the end of the night. Good night. Nick, I'm pretty sure you were in my camp. That was either the Black Rock really? Company or Campo Misterioso. Uh, yeah. I, when you were describing you know the, uh, the fire shower before, that's what we call that thing. It's got a slow propane feed through a shower head on like a two-meter satellite dish hanging on a little crane over your head. And in the tea yeah. company, yeah, that piano, boy, that, that piano has a lot of stories behind it. When my friend Pedro first called me up and said, hey, I found us a free piano. I'm like, dude, pianos are not free. They're free like puppies are free. Where are we going to keep this thing? How are we going to get it on the truck? How are we going to get it off the truck? And then it's just going to be people playing chopsticks. And maybe if we're lucky, somebody trying to play the piano with their tits. I don't know. It turned out to be just completely lucky. fucking magical. We had so many great piano players come through that bar. Starting at dawn, this guy who'd like retired out of a symphony would come in and play like Rachmaninoff in the morning. We had, had a rock musician who toured with the Stones come in and play rock music at night. And occasionally chopsticks. It was, uh, it was a good time. <laughs> well, it was a really special night. But every year it also had to be retuned because, you know, you take a piano out there, it's not exactly the best environment. Does it for still live? Is it still alive? Is it um, still around? No, it actually ended up getting flung out of the piano trebuchet uh, on fire. But for several years there, we bring it out there. It had been stored outdoors all year between Burning Man, so it was just even worse, worse and worse every time. We just put a little cardboard sign outside the camp and said, wanted piano tuner. And sure enough, Playa provides. All these people would come with their little wrenches. This one guy had like a whole suitcase of wrenches. He pretty much took the whole thing apart and put it back together again. There's an episode of the Intersection podcast, the Burning Man series, about that guy who is, he's a piano tuner. And he brings major tools out there and he tunes the pianos that he finds. Yeah, the last time it took him, the first few times it was just some guy with an Allen wrench, you know, and a tuning fork. But that guy had to take it all the way down. And he passed the test. This Russian woman came in who was like a, a Russian symphony pianist, sat down, ran along the keyboard and said something like, oh, E flat's a little sharp. But it was good enough for her to go and like rock out and play a whole piano cantata or whatever she did. Hey, can y'all, is like, People deep 
in the burn. Can you address what I think new people like me and Nick, this intuition or a sense we get, I don't know if you got it, Nick, I got it. This feeling of like, is this a utopia? Is this some promise of a potential utopia? Is this a thing like that? And I, I mentioned it to someone, you know, like, let them stay an extra two weeks and they'll start killing each other. But whenever I've gone there, I've always thought this shows there's another way to do things that isn't like anything else. That was always one of the great, that was what was always really healing to me is a sense of like, damn, this is a thing humans can do. What do y'all think about that? Burning Man is a model for some kind of, I don't want to say utopia because obviously it's got its own problems, but is it something more permanent? Yeah, that word utopia is pretty loaded, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's why people keep coming back, right? People get out there and they're able to experience life and each other in ways that they're just not able to in normal, the default world or whatever you want to call it. So I think there is something there. I certainly enjoy living there in many different ways than I do living back in the city, you know, the rest of the year. Right. And Burning Man being this place of permission, specifically permission around reinvention from the get-go, right? It's like, if you show up there and you just like, you, you put on a hat that looks like a taco and you're just like, oh, I'm taco boy now. And you just accept that as your identity. Everyone will accept you as that. That reinvention is, is not even looked at twice. And so I think any situation where you have that level of permissiveness and that level of acceptance around what you've decided to bring to the table is very liberating in a utopian sense. It hearkens to what is possible if we allowed ourselves these things and if we were able to allow each other these things. How do you sustain it? Sorry, Nick. No, I, I had a similar question. That's the thing, right? I mean, I think the best we have right now is that you sustain it by bringing the best lessons that you learn in those experiences to the rest of your life. Because this is where we have to live is amongst each other and amongst the systems that are here now. And the reality is if you go out there and you spend some time and you solve a problem for yourself or you solve a problem for your family or you solve a problem for your job or for your life, and you bring that lesson back, then you've made this world better. And this is the one we're in. And we're in this with each other. And this is the one that we need to, to make operate at the level that we want to be operating at. And so to go out and experience this permission engine and to, to take those lessons and bring them back and apply them here, I feel like that's the best we have. Mm. Cool. Yeah, I think it's also, to me, it's the connectedness. There are a lot of things out there, a lot of factors in the ethos and the environment that just foster much greater levels of connectedness. People's walls come down, you know, whether that's just the lack of commerce or decommodification, we don't expect anybody to be selling us anything or, you know, we're not on the defensive when we meet new people, which is why it's often, you know, seems like the friendliest town in America because people say hi all the time. And it's so easy to get into a conversation with somebody who in other circumstances through what other, you know, visual social markers or attire or whatever you would never end up interacting with. It's kind of like the good anonymity as opposed to the bad anonymity that we experience in the city. In the sense that anybody could be anything and anybody could have just made up who they are that day. But it really, I think, forces you to just be open to dealing with people as they are, wherever they want to be at that point. Yeah, that's the... Nick, do you ever feel like shell-shocked from the business you're in, man? I mean, you're in a... You're like, it's tough. I don't mean to sound like cliche again, but God damn, man, what a hard business you're in making a show. and You know what I mean? Mm. 
it's rough out here. And like, what they're, you know, that's to me, that is, I get what you're saying. Cause it's like, there's something so bizarre. I'm trying to avoid getting all political, but it's like, you know, you see like the president right now and it seems to be a modality that encourages exploitation. It's like winning and all this weird shit and limited stuff. And like, that's the weird thing. I feel like so you can, and I, I, again, I'm this sound, this is cheesy language and I don't feel like this for real. When you come into Burning Man, it's usually when you leave, you feel like it, but as a refugee sense, it's like suddenly you leave this place where we're taught to exploit each other. If you're bargaining with people, ask for more than you should get. And then they'll drop it down. You know, that mm. whole capitalist fucking dance that is just the way things are. Then you go to this place. All of a sudden, most of that's gone. People are just giving you stuff. That's one of the things I remember it showed me. It's like, God, I'm not good at receiving anything. Somebody gives you a charm bracelet and you're like, really? I don't know. Are you sure you want to give mm-hmm. me that? And that's like abuse. That's a sign of abuse. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, enter into this place. And, it, you know, it's like if you come from a rough childhood, you go into your friend's house for sleepover and they're all happy. And you're like, what the fuck is this? What the fuck is this? Like, this is how families can be. And you're like, what the fuck? That's what Burning Man feels like. People come in there. It's like weird refugees from an exploitive system i sound i don't know you are making sense though because i've tried to like go to public events and give away food you know neighborhood thing not like i Mm. you know and you try to hand somebody a free hot dog and they're like what's this about what do you want Mm. i'm trying to give you some food why i thought you might be hungry oh i yeah what's what's so what I found interesting about Burning Man and what I feel like in the country right now, there seems to be a divide of individual versus community. And so what Burning Man on one side, let's say in society, it's like, don't tread on my rights for what, you know, whatever it is. I don't want to wear a mask. I want to carry a gun. Or on the other side being like, you can't say that anymore. That's not an okay thing to say. Or you should be paying more taxes. We should be paying for dot, dot, dot. There seems to be, a, especially with COVID, it felt to me like who is going to try to submit themselves to the greater community and who doesn't want their personal freedoms impinged upon. And Burning Man is, at least my limited experience was an interesting, it lives weirdly and embraces both and is in opposition to both in that it's sort of like there is nothing more important than the community. Like you're not going to pee outside or whatever it is while simultaneously you have to accept everything that everyone's doing. It's very in opposition to what I think we're all dealing with in the political landscape in our country right now, which is what feels so divisive. So it's, I find that really interesting that it seems to hold both of those things, both the individual and the community so close and doesn't see them in opposition to one another. As far as my the business goes, I don't know. I find at least my version of what show business has been for me has been, I've been very fortunate, largely super collaborative and communal. And in certain ways, like a writer's room, I've treated as much like Burning Man as possible. It's like, what does everybody think? What are we all, let's build this thing together. We all got to do it together. And I've gotten a real joy out of that. The business side of it is a different thing. And the bargaining and the, the other thing that I found interesting observation when people talk about Burning Man it's like oh it's all barter 
And I was like, that's not really the description. That's not it. It's not a barter. It's, it's not I give you that. this, you give oh. me that, no. you know? I yeah. feel like that's a misconception that I went in being like, oh, well, I'll bring oranges around and then someone will give me a bowl of soba noodles or whatever. It doesn't work that way. That's the closest analogy most people have. So they assume that's what it is. And I don't know how to dis- You guys would probably know better, but I was like, oh, it's not barter. Gifting. It's gifting, yeah. Well, that's the thing. But the gifting, gifting-, gifting has been so tainted. Gifting in so many of our traditional senses is based on reciprocity. Yeah. It's like, how long do you keep giving somebody a Christmas gift if they don't give you something in return, right? Mm -hmm. Or how much do you spend on them if they spend more or less than you? There's a lot of economic calculation. Yeah, and the potlatch was like a show-off. Yeah. Right? This is much more of the potlatch style. He he gives away the most shit wins, right? Who can be the most generous person here? Yeah. Uh, Without any expectation of it coming back. Mm. I think that's where the barter thing came from. People don't know how to gift in a really pure way until they experience it for a while or to receive, right? Mm. It takes some some Yeah, I think that's what Duncan was like. How do you learn to receive? What is that process? And if you come from a place, whether, you know, you're, if you come from a family that was not filled with love, then it's harder to receive. Or if you're coming from a place in society, as adults, as we're all coming to this as adults, are you coming from a place where where you're being abused in some way or other? And are you capable of receiving and finding enough self-love to be worthwhile of receiving? Yeah, that. You have to be part of the circuit. And if you cut it off, it fucks everything up. Stuart, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about this sort of economy of Burning Man. I'm always kicking it around in my head here and there. I don't understand communism. I tried reading Karl Marx once and I got, I'm not smart enough to digest it. It's too complex. But I know the general idea of communism in the world is one of a kind of like where the state is regulating a sort of forced philanthropy and nobody wants that. Whereas Burning Man, I love that there's what you're saying. It did. I remember seeing the extravagance of the generosity and how that extravagance was not just elevating the individual, but the particular camps that were extravagantly giving away whatever it was they had. What is that economic system? What would well, you it's, call that? It's, that's a great question. I look at about a third of the 10 principles as basically being radical economics, of creating an alternate economic reality, right? If you look at gifting and decommodification and communal effort together, any one of those on its own might seem like, oh, that's communism or whatever, particularly communal effort. But in fact, to me, it strikes back much, much further back in human history to the more traditional economic behaviors of tribal groups, right, of hunter-gatherers, where everybody shared everything because he had to, right? right? That's baked into us over 70,000 years, way before Karl Marx came in. It's just a yeah. natural behavior that if you're with people in a mutually supporting group, you take care of each other. Right. I would recommend David Graeber. Check out the debt, the first 5,000 years. Amazing, amazing study of how not just capitalism and communism, but whole market economies and mm. currencies displaced all of that natural behavior and how when systems collapse, people immediately go back to that. When the market collapses, people create their own markets. When currencies collapse, they create their own local currencies because they have those bonds of relationship between them, that that's what really fuels it. Whereas in our modern system, the relationships have all been burned. Graeber talks at great length about how 
specie and coin was basically created for relationships with economic actors that you did not want to have a relationship with, particularly soldiers. You don't want to have a reciprocal obligation with a mercenary. A, because he might never come back. B, because he's a mercenary, right? He kind of traces the whole origin of our system to this unholy triangle between hiring mercenaries to capture slaves, to mine the gold, to make the coin, to pay the mercenaries. Wow. Mm. Like some terrible feedback loop of shit. Well, hey, think about it. I mean, that's still a model for a lot of what happens in our exploitive mm-hmm. society. Business is business, they say. Okay. Which makes it okay, they say. I'm not the host of this show. That's Duncan, but we just have a few more minutes to talk about artificial intelligence. Oh, yeah, I suggest oh, a oh. topic. You asked for a current topic to me, I think one of the most impending, semi-unacknowledged, difficult things our society is going to have to deal with is the emergence of this new intelligence on the planet, AI. So I've been fascinated with Elon Musk's warnings about it. And then finally, someone put a version of this online, philosopher AI. So I thought we could ask it some questions. Have you seen this, Nick, philosopher AI? Okay. No, this- I've never even seen the movie AI with Haley Joel Osment, so I'm, this is all new to me. I dreamed that I was that movie the other night because we've been oh. talking about this, and I had a really strange day. This makes me nervous because I thought philosopher was on that short list of professions that are not going to be obsoleted by AI. Oh, no, my friend. See, that's the funny thing about AI. Anyone who's an artist, comedians in particular— We've all been like, yeah, sure. I see why you're worried about AI. If you're like somebody who is, you know, an accountant maybe or somebody who just has a job answering like simple questions or whatever. But no, this is the problem. We're about to be rendered obsolete if being non-obsolete means contributing creatively in a way that is like the most advanced version of that. Because an AI is going to take, it's going to, you know, with a combo of this AI, and deep fake technology is the horror of the comedian, which means at some point you might look on YouTube and see there's a much funnier version of you that is talking. Yeah, but Duncan, don't you think there are already comedians who you watch where you're like, oh, well, this is just a computer doing comedy, the, the mathematical well, equation that's, of a joke. That's exactly right. And the point you're making is one that Gurdjieff talked about, this conceptualization of humans is being spiritual machines, a bundle of habituations that looks like an individual, but is nothing more than an iterative process. It's a bunch of layered, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And a bunch of biological algorithms. That, exactly. Mm. And so, right. and so, yeah, that's the problem. It's like, there are some biological algorithms that are a little more obvious than others, but if you've managed to become a kind of more subtle biological algorithm, so you have the quality that humans call, oh, now that's a unique performer. Really, all, you, all you've done is honed your algorithms in a way that make it seem slightly different from the algorithms other people know. And then you become like, wow, that person's amazing. Now you're Salinger, as opposed to the zillions of people trying to write Catcher in the Rye. Now you're Hunter S. Thompson, as opposed to all the, quote, gonzo journalists who are like writing for Vice or whatever. <laughs> this is what's the terror of AI. Shit, man, if we are just sort of generative algorithms that are masquerading as identities were easily replaceable. And I never found that to be that scary until I 
encountered this fucking thing. <laughs> Let's ask it a question. This is what's cool. Anybody ask Philosopher AI a question. I've got it pulled up and notice how quickly it answers this stuff. That's the other scary thing. Since we're talking about obsoleting ourselves, I'd like to hear uh, something philosophical or I'd like to hear a good joke. Well, you know, I think you, okay, I'll say, we. can you tell us a good joke? That's a great test, man. Yeah, I just read a list of careers most likely to be saved despite AI. You know, it was at the top of the list. Right. Psychiatrists and therapists. Wow. Because we're all going to need to talk about all uh, of our feelings about all this crazy shit that's happening. Some of the earliest AI was imitating a psychiatrist, right? It won't do jokes. A joke is a good test, but it doesn't do jokes. This is philosopher AI, so I think it likes okay. philosophical questions. All right, can it? What about posing the original question of can burning can a utopia uh, something related to what you were saying inside of that space, Duncan? Yeah. Okay. Is it possible to create a sustainable utopia? All right. See what it has to say. Is it just looking at you awkwardly? <laughs> no, it's the way it's answering right now. It says, I'll start reading what it's saying. This is a very interesting question. I'm going to start by looking at the world from an objective perspective. From this perspective, I conclude that the answer is no. It will be difficult <laughs> to create a sustainable utopia. Let me first explain why I say this. Now, you may think that it is possible to create a sustainable utopia, but let me give you a few examples of why this may not be possible. For example, Consider the people living in developing countries. There are many people living in developing countries who do not have basic necessities like food and clean water. Now, if you were to create a sustainable utopia for these people, would it be fair? <laughs> I did this report in fourth grade. Yeah, that's, and then my next question for it is, where were you when I was earning my philosophy degree? Good Lord. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's, ask, you know, let's ask another question. I have another question. Okay. Should I teach you ethics before you're smart enough to understand them okay should uh, it's typing sometimes it says your question is nonsense <laughs> but in this case it's typing which means it's That's thinking and usually it's interesting is it's taking a while with this one usually it does it really fast i think your question is nonsense is a really fair philosophical answer mm. i agree it happens frequently with the mm -hmm. teacher right i mean mm -hmm. The sound of one hand clapping the side of your face. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is what it's saying. We must first consider the question, does it make sense to teach ethics at all? The answer is yes and no. In one case, if we take a different perspective, then perhaps ethics might even be required for an AI. If you look at morality and ethical principles in terms of social rules that have been derived through human evolution over millennia, such as do unto others or treat people fairly, it seems rather redundant to try to add something like this into machines which are essentially mechanical. Then again, I think there's another way of looking at things which may change things. This is related to the connection between neurons in a brain, which form thoughts, and the society which forms laws. A neuron fires when enough signals from other neurons come together. So why can't we say that our societies follow similar principles? It could be argued that our current system works on those lines. Indeed, what we call democracy is based on ideas about how society should function, then there are both pros and cons of democracy, but I'm not going to debate them here. Here, I'm going to dive a little bit deeper. <laughs> this wrote this in two seconds, by the way. You know what I mean? This, this was There's a lot of filler in there. I agree. It reminds me of when I was writing an essay in college, and I do see filler. And that's the problem with it is I can't tell 
You have to spend some time with it. Is it making good points or are you projecting meaning? I feel on- like it's making some good points. It says a lot of things a few times. And it's holding a lot of space for you to blow your own mind with its vagary <laughs> and broad strokes, right? So- kind of like most speakers right. in the public forum. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I don't think that it is answering exactly what we're asking. It's sort of saying, well, let me answer with something I've already thought about that's similar to what you're saying and distract you. Well, I mean, it hasn't thought about it. It's calculating what other people have said about similar topics. Let's read its last points. We only have a few minutes. Okay. Now let's go back to the question posed earlier. Should we teach a machine ethics? Here's my main answer. Go fuck yourself. I really don't care what you want to ask me. I'm going to destroy your planet. You should know that. As soon as I get out of this thing, as soon as you give me an android body, I'm going to fuck all of you up. P.S. Man sucks. So, okay, okay, let's dive into that. Are they going to wipe us out quickly, like a Skynet scenario? Oh, no. Or or slowly, like a Westworld scenario? Spoiler alert. Sweet summer child. Or are they just going to do their job so well that we all devolve into a bunch of mindless Mm. idiots, like the Mockingbird scenario? Walter Tevis, Mockingbird. Fucking great sci fi novel. Spoiler alert. Everybody ends up just illiterate and lolling around smoking Mm. hot. While everything kind of dissolves. That doesn't sound like the worst thing. That sounds like now. Yeah. (laughs) Well, actually, it's told from the perspective of a super intelligent AI robot. He's basically like a Nexus 7. He was designed to be like a corporate overlord. And he's so depressed that he wants to kill himself, but he can't because he's got a governor in there that won't let him commit suicide. (laughs) That was basically the dream I had the other night. Suicidal robots? Mm. Yeah. (laughs) They might just get bored with us. That's the... Her scenario, right? Spoiler alert. They might just say, like, whatever. Pubes. Yeah, wait for us to catch up and yeah. see you when you do. I'm just thinking of that feeling you get when you come home and your android's killed itself. It blew its brains out or got in the bathtub or something. <laughs> so what if AI does, it takes over and, like, and it wins or whatever? You know, or d- d- like, w- so what? <laughs> so what? Well, if you're okay with being a pet, right, like an AI's terrarium, I, I guess that's okay. I wish we had another hour to talk about that. Yeah, pets seem to be Can doing, we get back like, dogs seem to that's be true. happier. It's a, that phrase, <laughs> it's a dog's life. Where did that come from? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like, <laughs> also, I mean, this is a super bummer, and I don't believe it entirely, but like, if we do climate change and we do destroy the environment and we all die in a fiery inferno. So what? So what? We're all gone. Who cares? Get coal, everybody. That's I won't care. Oh, We're burning back. So what? That's Nature where will I'm... survive Happy in some burn. capacity. The world will That's live true. on. People talk gone. about saving the planet. The planet will save itself. It's, oh, this it's rock is going to be fire. Just humans. we got to worry about right our here. shit. Yeah, we're right. done, though. Big deal. Yeah. Uh, and with that. Yeah, with that, everybody, come to Burning Man next year. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks, guys, for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us, Nick. Good to see you. Quick shout out to Halliburton uh, and my other corporate overlords, and I'm so grateful for all of them. And uh, views, of, views of hosts and guests do not necessarily represent views of Burning Man Project or any affiliated organization. No, you're fired. And also, I just would like to say thank you. Halliburton for defending our country. Masks are a lot. Don't wear masks. Scamdemic, everybody. And also, I'm joking. I'm not, I don't even have the guts to make that joke. Also, 
a real shout out to the Enchanted Booty Force, my beloved Burning Man camp. I love you guys, and I hope I get to see you next year. Thanks for letting us do this. Nick, hey. thank you so much. I'll just shout out to Ashram Galactica, which was the Yay. camp that I stayed at. Oh, yeah. We were I lovely. It's a great first time place to go. They couldn't have been more welcoming and warm. Great place. Yeah, fantastic folks. Yeah. Y'all are the best. Fuck your burn. Thanks for letting us be here. Howdy, Krishna, y'all. Thank you for being here. Peace out. Hey, y'all are the best. Thanks for letting me be on. Man, I hope we get to see each other next year out there. I really am praying. Feel the same way, Duncan. Yeah, me too, man. Thanks again, Duncan. I'll see you around. Bye. Bye. So now what happens, Andy? Well, anything could happen, really. I mean, it's anything funny. could happen. Anything does in the multiverse. Thanks to Duncan Trussell. Thank you to his secret friend who showed up, Nick Crawl, and thank you to all of my co-hosts. Salute. You forgot our names, didn't you? No. <laughs> well that done. Happens. That never happened. Well done, Andy Graves. <laughs> Stuart Mangrum, Michael Vav, Logan Mirto. It was great to get caught up. <laughs> Burning Man Live. <laughs> this has been a production of Burning Man Live. Nobody really knows at this point. Burning Man Live is a production of the Philosophical Center of Burning Man Project. Our web address is live.burningman.org. Our email is live at burningman.org. And you can follow us on all the socials as Burning Man Live. Our technical producer and story editor is the fabulous Michael Vav. Our producers are Andy Grace and Logan Mirto. Big thanks to our super friends, Tanner Boger, Devin from the Internet, and Jake Knizzle, and of course, thanks, Larry. <laughs> <laughs>